Hi, friends, and welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Direct Care Derm. My name is Stephen. I'm a board-certified dermatologist and direct care dermatology practice owner. I'm also your host. The Direct Care Derm is a podcast that gives you a blueprint for creating a direct care practice of your own with the help of my story as I'm living it and the stories of many friends and colleagues, both within dermatology and other fields of medicine and in relevant non-medical fields, such as marketing and finance. Each week, my friends and I will be bringing you tips, resources, education, entertaining stories, industry insights, and so much more. Consider this your one-stop shop for taking yourself from direct care curiosity to direct care mastery. At this point, you may find yourself asking, what is direct care? Direct care is the restoration of the therapeutic physician-patient relationship and the trust between patient and physician that has eroded so terribly over the last several decades. Direct care is addition by subtraction. It's the opposite of indirect care, the kind of care that's so frustrating to both patients and doctors, where appropriate care is constantly having to be justified to insurance companies and other third-party payers, and necessary medical care is delayed in sometimes disastrous ways, all in the blind pursuit of profit. If you or a doctor in your life has ever talked about being burned out in medicine, this is one of the biggest reasons why. Fortunately, there's something we can do about it. By removing as many barriers as possible that stand between physicians like myself and the people who need us, direct care practices seek to provide transparent, affordable, accessible, and superior care that meets and ideally even surpasses the expectations of the 21st century healthcare consumer. If you like this and want to subscribe to my newsletter, head over to LewellisMD.com. That's L-E-W-E-L-L-I-S M-D, as in medicaldoctor.com. With me today, we have Farhad Riaz, MD, and you mentioned just off uh, air to me, soon to be MBA, which is exciting, just a, a week or two. But Farhad, thank you very much for coming on the Direct Care Derm podcast, and I'd like you to take a couple minutes to introduce yourself. Yeah, of course. First of all, thanks for having me. It's exciting to to see what you're building, and I always love the idea of people in our space in dermatology creating things and especially when it comes to creating things that help other people. I think we've got a very talented pool of dermatologists across the mm -hmm. country and it's just exciting to see people even go outside of those kind of classic talents of taking care of patients and going a little bit meta, analyzing what they're seeing, whether it's trends or whether it's their own desires or their own plans for their life and sharing that with other people. So it's awesome to, to see your vision and to be part of it. I am a dermatologist. I started my journey in undergrad, really, my actually even before that, I'm the son of a physician, right? So my mom's a nephrologist, and I always knew that I wanted to go into medicine. My first interest in medicine was orthopedic surgery. I had an injury when I was a kid. We ended up, I was holding a glass door open, and the friend of mine pushed it back into my arm and my hand went through the glass oh. and I cut my yeah my ulnar nerve and Jeez. my artery and the and I needed microsurgery and had to oh. put it back together and I was so fascinated by surgery that I decided to shadow that same surgeon <laughs> probably for a summer or two and I still actually funny enough it, life comes full circle because when I finally finished all my I was eighth grade when I finally finished all my training I ended up referring a, a case to him after a complex Mohs I had moved Amazing. back to the area yeah, which was great. So I went to undergrad at VCU and they had a guaranteed med program. So I got in there and finished eight years there. I shaved 
half of a year off of undergrad, I ended up biking across the country, seeing the country from a bicycle is just an amazing thing. And then stayed in Richmond for med school, got into my dream residency program, my dream field, even dermatology, I would have been very happy to match almost anywhere and moved to Michigan. I did internship at St. Joe's. I did residency at Henry Ford and then decided to do a year long fellowship that's dual accredited in cosmetics and Mohs or micrographic surgery Mm -hmm. at Northwestern. Uh, After I finished there, we moved back to DC. Uh, I dragged my wife kicking and screaming from the Midwest. (laughs) And I lived out my dream of being uh, close to my side of the family back on the East Coast. And by and large, things were good. I worked for, my first job was for a private equity group, or they call it, uh, I guess it's pseudo private equity. It's integrated dermatology. They treated me relatively well, and I was happy there. I was uh, well reimbursed and generally well supported, although there are some consolations you have to make if you're working for an employer. About two years in was when the pandemic hit and things started to get a little more complicated in terms of um, reimbursement structure and in terms of there's work, having the support I needed to do what I needed to do, just logistics of practicing in the middle of a pandemic. And we decided to go our separate ways. And so then I started becoming an independent contractor and I continued to work in uh, D.C., Virginia and Maryland from 2020 through the beginning of 2022. We were in the slow process in 2020. We were in the slow process of moving back to Michigan. It became apparent that my wife had a better opportunity here. Her brother owns an ophthalmology practice here. And for her job, it was really important for her to have good surgical numbers. And she wasn't getting those surgical numbers in D.C. And in the world of ophthalmology, if it's like this downward spiral or spiral of death, if you don't do the surgery, then you get a little bit less comfortable doing it. And then your outcomes may not be as good and you, you have confidence in, in your procedures and your outcomes. And then some people even end up stopping, um, no longer providing surgical services. It, it's not so high stakes in dermatology, thankfully. Yeah. But uh, so she had a great opportunity to walk into back in Michigan and it made sense for us. The cost of living was extremely expensive and childcare was extremely hard to find. For example, when the pandemic hit, our original nanny who had been with us for two years, um, kind of, and so the only help we could find were people who didn't really care about isolating. Like the only new person who's willing to walk into it, especially in those days, walk into a new house were people who were also going out and spending time with friends. And we mm-hmm. were, so I remember on more than one occasion, it was a Monday morning and we woke up, a new person showed up at the front door. We handed her keys. We told her, this is our baby. And we both headed off to work. And then I would just go to work and not think about what mm-hmm. was that. My wife, on the other hand, would check the, the nanny cam every 15 minutes. And my daughter was, cream, was crying the entire time, like for eight hours straight. Brutal. And we were like, this is crazy. And then also, we, my wife being on a, a compensation-based reimbursement plan was basically paying her entire paycheck just to have someone else watch the baby. So it didn't make any sense for her, you know, for her to even be at work. That was like the original impetus for moving back to Michigan. And then she moved back a little bit earlier than me. I finalized moving back in 2022 and then started, I, I was, I'd been practicing telemedicine through that entire time hmm. and kind of bridged the gap. Fantastic. That is a fascinating story. I see a lot of parallels between the two of us already in terms of being hit with that pandemic and that shock and, and trauma of that I'm sure a lot of us are still working through. There were just a lot of complications, especially career-wise and family-wise, if you have ki- young kids especially, that go along with that. And 
the the moving it, it, that itself is a big deal that not a lot of people experience. It, it, we don't give ourselves credit for how stressful all of that is. I was talking to a therapist about that and describing my and my wife's relationship and how many times we've moved since we've been together and. To oh, me, yeah. that feels normal. But to him, you've never had a chance to have a normal, stable relationship, really, in terms of geographies and work and career. And step back and you have to appreciate the challenges of that and have have some compassion for yourself. Uh, I, I just really appreciate that about your story. Uh, you mentioned pseudo private equity. I, I, I bookmarked that because I had actually never heard pseudo private equity. So say a little bit more about what what you mean by that, where you think that came from and what it means, how it might distinguish itself from maybe a forefront or, a, or another one that you think would be fully private equity. Yeah, absolutely. I know a bit about private equity. I know a bit about venture capitalism. And those funds usually are from some kind of third party or pooled um, or from an external source. Um, in the case of integrated dermatology, I think it's actually technically privately owned okay. by the brothers who founded, I think their last name is Queen, who founded the thing that we used to all hear advertisements for, were like, help, I've fallen and I can't get up, like that panic <laughs> gotcha. button that, yes. that was marketed towards elderly. So they got their initial capital through okay. the success of that campaign and that product. And now are like the back end for integrated dermatology. So I think that they own integrated dermatology. I don't think it's private equity in that it's a bunch of investors mm -hmm. who are looking for a vehicle for their investment. Yeah. Oftentimes they go into practice arrangements, either like sometimes 50-50 or maybe 51-49 where they have the majority. And again, this is my understanding. I may be wrong on some of the details here, That's okay. but it's an opportunity for someone, someone who wants to start a practice of their own, who needs a little bit more financial backing or who needs the back end organizational support. I think that they, there's a lot that's, even though every integrated dermatology is independent from the others, they still share a name mm -hmm. and they also share probably central billing and they all share the same electronic medical record, which is a proprietary one. So there, there's some kind of economies of scale for people who want to feel like a, they own a business or own a, a practice without, I, I think, honestly, I think it's a solution to some mm -hmm. of the problems that direct care is a solution for, yeah. right? If, if you were to ask me, why did you do direct care? And maybe we'll go in that direction. We will. Um, I think you might have the same conversation with a lot of people and that's there's a lot of bureaucracy that I'm trying to avoid or I wanted flexibility or wanted autonomy. And those are definitely yeah. true for me. I think some doctors may also say things like they want to offer personalized care. And I will admit that is a benefit of direct care. But for me, it's really those first three. I, I don't like bureaucracy. I, um, I like to operate in a minimalistic way. I like to find the rules and offer a service that's customized, that works with the rules, but also is appropriate for me and my lifestyle and, and serves the needs of my patients. If, they, if we're happy and the patients are happy, then I don't really love the idea of having a middleman or, or something like that. And I think actually, to be honest with you, I think integrated dermatology probably is, for many people, a solution to those same mm -hmm. things, right? There's this overwhelming amount of bureaucracy that controls how we practice and that makes it difficult for us to practice. MIPS, MACRA, <laughs> you know, e how do I pick an EMR, all these yeah. other things, and billing, and do I need to get credentialed with all these insurers? And I think integrated solves a lot of those problems for a lot of people, as does PE in many ways. So these are solutions to a larger problem. I think it's fewer and far between that you see just this kind of person who hangs their shingle and practices the old school way without some affiliation. 
what I love about what you're touching on there is that it's trying to solve a problem. It is physicians trying to solve a problem or someone else trying to solve a problem that they see for physicians as a result of the things that have been layered on top of our duties and our ability to make a living. And it's not a, an evil thing. It's simply trying to solve a problem. And you, you, we have to explore different ways of solving that problem. And, I, and as you touched on, the direct care movement is a different way of solving that problem. How I see the centralized billing services and all, all these things that the economies of scale uh, that a uh, private equity-backed uh, firm will introduce in order to increase the bottom line because they do need to make a return for their investors, but also ease the burden on their physicians and, and let them actually do their work. You are paying to remove the layers of, of bureaucracy or paying someone else to deal with them. Whereas direct care is right. you are literally removing them so that you don't have to pay for them. So that you're running a, a shop that is minimalistic, as you said, it's lean and it brings it back to the days when it was common for a doctor to hang a shingle because it felt possible. Uh, and that's what we're doing right. now. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm hanging a shingle and I never thought I could do that. It never felt realistic coming out of residency. All the talk that I heard was, it's so hard these days, insurance, this, but rising costs, labor, all these sorts of things. You don't want a headache of running a practice. But if you just think about it and solve it in a different way, it is very possible to hang a shingle and more and more people are doing that. And more and more people are going to want to have models and roadmaps uh, to do that once they get interested. And that's the main impetus for me starting this show and wanting to talk to people like you. So I want to be very open about you, people like you and I, we don't see the private equity or any way of solving the problem as bad. I want us to be open-minded and we just have different ways of solving problems. And I would love for you now to say, to talk about how you came to direct care. Do you remember the first time that you heard about it as even a possibility? And what's your experience been like so far? And you mentioned that it's, I think it, you said telemedicine, is it virtual? Is it purely virtual? Or do you also see patients in person? Tell me your direct care story. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first time I heard about direct care, it seemed like a movement almost. I stay active on boards. Probably one of the best things that's mm -hmm. happened to all of us as dermatologists is our ability to communicate um, quickly and easily through social media. And I think that the board certified dermatologist Facebook group, for example, is a wonderful place where I get, I've gotten jobs through that group. I've made countless connections. I wouldn't have yeah. met you if it weren't probably for that group. So I think it was through one of these Facebook groups, Direct Pay Derms. And I, I joined just out of curiosity because I, I'm always interested in different people's practice models and not knowing whether it's necessarily a more lucrative way of practicing or if it's just a happier way of practicing. Mm -hmm. And really, I think a year in now, I could say it's a happier way of practicing yeah. and it's a flexible way of practicing. Mm -hmm. And it is a, a satisfying way of practicing. Every week I have people tell me, that your practice is a godsend. Literally those words I had someone say to me this, this week was that your practice is a god, like this practice is a godsend. Yeah. Strive to have satisfied patients. And I think that I had similar compliments or, or comments wherever I was practicing, but there were fewer and far between. And I was definitely less connected with my patients and knew less of what their experience was like mm -hmm. before I started the direct care practice. But really it was through one of these, probably through that direct pay derms group that I heard other people talking about it and it got my curiosity peaked. And then actually, funny enough, 
there, I started looking up online if there were any direct care dermatologists in Southeast Michigan in my area. Cause as I mentioned earlier, I knew that I was going to start living here in, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a woman who had been practicing direct care in Southeast Michigan as early as maybe two years ago and, or maybe three years ago. And I I didn't know why she had closed her practice and I didn't know why she wasn't doing it anymore. But her website said clearly that she had been practicing regular insurance-based dermatology for 20 years or so and then woke up one day and decided to change to direct care and did that for a few years and then retired. And I contacted her and luckily I was able to find her information pretty easily online. It's scary because probably our all of right. our information is pretty easily yeah. found online. But she still lives in the area. And I was a bit afraid because I thought that maybe she had retired because for whatever reason, maybe it wasn't viable in this area or maybe it wasn't just a it just wasn't a viable model. Although I had seen the success of so many other colleagues. Specifically, I think there are some very successful practices in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, in all over the place. A direct care can work almost anywhere. But some of the most vocal people there's a, a very vocal member of that direct care derms. I, I I won't mention names because I don't know if they're comfortable with me sharing names, but sure. in Florida who's immensely helpful and helped me in so many different ways figure out dispensing laws and figure out all the steps to be able to dispense and how to get wholesalers even what the rules are behind the emrs and how kind of most bare bones emr that i can have while still following the rules etc when i i had heard so many successful stories from the direct pay terms uh, i contacted this doctor who had retired and she told me that she had retired actually because of a personal health problem hmm. and she said and i quote that direct care was the best part of her career and that was that was literally when i decided i was like okay this is what i'm going to do hmm. because she she had been practicing she was on the other end of her career right i was just starting i was what 4 years in at, at that point or whatever yeah probably i'm 5 years in now and for her to say those words and so clearly uh, after 30 years of practicing dermatology, it, it resonated with me. So I met her for lunch, and actually, it's really funny, but the location that I ended up opening my practice in was a building that was previously owned by her husband. And <laughs> her husband, funny enough, I'm married to a, an ophthalmologist. Her husband was an ophthalmologist too, who unfortunately passed away quite early <laughs> and left her and her five kids behind. But he owned that building, and he had practiced there too, and she had managed his finances. Wow. And so it was like, it was really uh, serendipitous. But she was very encouraging and a great contact and made me realize that direct care could work literally in the location where I was. After that, my mind was set, and I just got started. That's awesome. A few things that I want to touch on. First of all, the power of reaching out. You never know what's going to come from that one phone call. And, and you went so far, you, you didn't know contact info, so you found it. And it, it didn't do anything wrong by doing it. I was you afraid. You found it. Yeah. And you, thank you. you. You said you were afraid, but you still did it. And you stepped into that. You stepped through that. And from that came a, a, just another great person to know, and perhaps another friendship, a, a, a collegial relationship with someone who's been where you are wanting to go. Stephen, her ahead. please, her excitement <laughs> fueled me. Yeah, because she was she, when I to, I told her I was I was just sheepish, and I was like, I feel so bad. Mm-hmm. I'm calling you. I don't know if I have the right person. Please excuse me for just calling you out yeah. of the blue. You, you didn't give me permission to call you. I had to track you down. You cold caller. Yeah, but. 
you know, I have this idea and I wanted to kind of pick your brain. And I thought that, you know, maybe she would just say, leave me alone mm -hmm. or whatever. But she told me that she was so excited that I was going to be starting a direct care practice in, in the area where I am. And that was like to hear that level of support, right? Like we don't have, sometimes we have relationships with mentors that trained us over the years and they all you would expect excitement for them but to get excitement from a random stranger who mm -hmm. was already retired and had no investment in me um it, it was even more exciting for me yeah. so definitely reaching out um not being afraid to pick up the phone i mean you have you know you're you're doing something new you're doing something different and you'd be surprised how far you can get by doing the thing that everyone else is just a little bit shy to do yeah. or just a little bit afraid to do people are just maybe a little bit afraid like what is it really going to take if I start my own practice? Or mm -hmm. what is it really going to be like if I if I try this new thing? But if you're willing to do those few extra steps that someone else that that everyone else was afraid to do, yeah. like you you almost can it's almost too easy. You, and again, I'm not saying starting that. a practice no. is easy, but it almost is, right? You just create your own way and before you know it, it's working. It feels like you're cheating in some way because it is, there are right. so you don't eliminate the competition. There just isn't much in the end right. because you are choosing to do the thing that not many people are willing to do and right. that so that's a great way of looking at it rather than having the mindset of how am i going to survive in this extremely competitive area and i don't know if we're thinking about the same person from from florida because in that group there's so many helpful people but right. that one person that i have in mind who's in florida practice on a very busy area dermatologists everywhere aesthetic practices everywhere lots of competition and just still made it work. And that brings me back to what you said about you were so happy to know that it's possible in your area where you live in Michigan. And I believe in my heart that it's possible anywhere. I, I get a lot of people get hung up on, eh, yeah, it can work for where you are. That's fine for you. But where I am, there's not people who will actually pay for their medical care, even though that's what we're all already doing anyway, just indirectly. Yeah. And, and we're doing it directly and indirectly instead of just directly. So I believe that it's possible just about anywhere and in a lot more fields than people think as well. Dermatology is wonderfully amenable to it, but there are people building surgery centers. There are orthopedic surgeon pra surgery practices that are doing knee replacements for $17,000 instead of $150,000 that it's going to cost through an insurance model. And that that still works. And they're probably living their best surgery lives, just like this woman that you were talking about. And it's just, it feels like it's because it's the first time that a lot of doctors feel the, uh, know what it's like to experience what they thought it was going to be like, like being, just being a doctor, having a patient come to you, you get to be a doctor you do what you train to do. You do what you really care about. They express gratitude. You get paid in some way that's not nebulous and frustrating, and everyone moves on. And that's probably what she finally felt late in her career and perhaps regrets not finding that earlier. But yeah, that just making that connection, making that phone call, that's a big deal, even though it might not feel that way. And now here you are in a practice where people are Literally saying that your practice saved them in some way, which is right. what it's all about. And, and, and about, um, you know, whether it could not work, whether it could work or not work in a certain area, everyone should do their research about yeah. what the sentiment is mm -hmm. and what the concern. Part of doing research is starting any practice, whether it's going to be direct pay or whether yeah. it's going to be insurance-based practice. Part of your research is what complaints do people have, yeah. right? If you're gonna start a practice here, whether or not you do insurance or mm -hmm. not, it's like, what's not right about the surrounding practices? Yeah. What could be improved? Is it the wait time? Is it that the practice 
has one dermatologist, but most patients don't actually end up seeing the dermatologist. They end up seeing a an advanced practice yeah. provider or a mid-level provider. Mm. That's part of your market research is you have to figure out what complaints people have. And one of those might be might fit or might align with the direct care premise. But I will tell you, Southeast Michigan is very well served by dermatologists already. Mm. We have here uh, the Wayne State Residency Program, mm. which graduates three or four residents a year. The Henry Ford Residency Program, which graduates seven residents a year. The University of Michigan program, which graduates eight or so residents a year, and then several DO dermatology programs that graduate probably at least eight residents a year yeah. between St. Joe's and some of the other programs. That's a lot of residents per year. And the thing is, most of them, or at least half of them, have some tie to Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so at least half end up staying in Michigan. And wait times are not that long. I know people have started practices here that were, had difficulty getting busy. Contrast that to my home state, Virginia. The entire state of Virginia only has six residents that graduate a year. That being said, there's DC, and, and then a lot of residents from Virginia end up practicing in Northern Virginia or in DC, but the rest of Virginia is not that well served. I had hesitation, and I was worried until I talked to this physician. <laughs> One thing I learned in business school, but even in life, is that there is some inherent risk in practicing business and if you're doing something to make money there are very few things that will make you money and have no risk and if they, if you're that risk intolerant and that's the kind of job that you need there are mm -hmm. jobs like that in Absolutely. dermatology you can be an employee mm -hmm. and if you have no interest in practice management there are safe jobs in dermatology yeah. but if you have a, even a small appetite for risk or if you or maybe you don't have an appetite for risk but you have a dream and you want to enact that dream or you're young and you want you say this is my chance to do this thing or maybe you're later on in your in your career and you say i wish i had done this thing all along and now maybe if i don't do this now I, i'm going to run out of time to, to do this wherever you are in your career a little bit of risk is necessary and i'm not minimizing that i think it can be scary and that's why we try to make resources. Yeah. That's why we try to talk about it. That's why we try to think about if we can make a calculated risk, if we can think about what the risks are and we can factor all the things in, you might say, hey, I need a certain base level of income. And I can get that part-time working at this clinic mm -hmm. that I might have to drive a little bit out of the way so that I'm outside of yeah. their non-compete. And they're okay with me starting my own thing somewhere else. You might have to think a little bit outside of the box in order to mitigate your risk. And I'm at the luxury where I am just like, blessed with with many fortunes I'm, I'm the son of a physician who my mom still works and oh, wow. god forbid i would ever need it but if yeah. i fell into unemployment there's no way she would we yeah. just have such a safety net my wife part of a dual income household there's blessing over blessing i didn't have any student loans because i had generous parents and i've heard people say that before generous parents but it's more than just that sure. they had for they were fortunate too and they were blessed too and they just happened to believe that passing fortune on to their children was their best opportunity or, yeah. or their best decision at the time. And it's nothing against parents who have a different philosophy or a different mm -hmm. way of doing things. I think there's, when I, now that I'm a parent, I think about, I'm not like a restrictive type of person, but I'm like, is it really good for me to give her everything she wants or do I need to <laughs> yeah, teach absolutely. her a little bit of restriction? If it can work in Southeast Michigan, I really do believe it can work almost anywhere. I know that there are places, and a part of the other part of the fear is, wow, this place, this area that I live in and that I'm tied to is so saturated, mm -hmm. right? That's a word that we use a lot. But if you look at the studies and you look at where there's the highest number of dermatologists per capita, that's Boston. And the very close second is the suburbs of DC, specifically mm -hmm. the Maryland suburbs of DC. At least this may be a few years old now. 
those areas, even though they have the highest number of dermatologists per person in the country, they also have some of the longest wait times for dermatologists. How do we interpret that? One of the ways to interpret that is that even though there are a lot of dermatologists there, that drives up some demand for others to also see a dermatologist. Because if, if I have a dermatologist, then I talk to my friends about it. Like, oh, I had to have this mole removed. And then they say, oh, geez, I have this mole too. So I think just the conversation in the public about having dermatology care espouses more people to want dermatology care. So I no longer get afraid. There are ways to increase demand for the services that we provide. There's a lot to it, but I think about your risk, think about your situation. And if you have the luxury of being able to take some risk, you could probably also build something huge. Absolutely. The the risk issue, I want to hang, uh, dissect that a little longer because it's a, a really important concept. We, as physicians, what are we? We're risk managers, essentially. I mean, we're not actuaries, but we are talking to real live people all day long about relative risk and risk benefit. Uh, at least that's what we should be doing uh, with a lot of our time. The paradigm I use with uh, my patients when we're talking about medications and treat any sort of treatment is the risk of treatment versus the risk of non-treatment. I want them to try to understand that there are risks of not taking this medicine or not doing this regimen, whatever it happens to be. And But the only risks we tend to focus on are the risks of doing the thing, of adding the thing. And if we don't think like that, it's dangerous. There are risks to exercising, but the, what are the, right. what are the risks of not exercising, right? <laughs> so that, and knowing that if you want to live a, a, a different kind of life or a life that is somewhere in here and you can feel it, you can see it and you, you believe it in your heart, that's not going to happen without taking some risk. And it's definitely not going to happen without feeling some fear. You probably felt a tinge of fear before calling that the woman who you ended up speaking to who had that practice in Michigan. And I know a lot of people who would be listening to this show if they are, as I say, direct care curious. There's going to be a lot more and more of those people who are going to just be lurking in that direct pay derms Facebook group, just like you and I were at the beginning and curious about it. And they have a really stable job and their family relies on that and they rely on it. And it's nice to just have a stable income, but you're feeling that pull of, yeah, I have this stable income, but I'm not truly doing what I want to, what I want to be doing. And I don't have the autonomy that I think I deserve. There are trade-offs. There are trade-offs to being an employee and there are trade-offs to not being an employee. And there's risks that come with both of them calculated risk, like you were saying, and also mitigating the risks, putting some other things on the, on your financial table that they don't, it doesn't have to be all, you don't have to go from having this employed job where you have a steady stream of patients and that generates a, a lot of income for you to forcing your new baby of a business to all of a sudden produce all of that income. Do some things while you're building right. that, while you're experimenting. Work with industry in different ways. I, I, I know that you have outside interests in uh, angel investing, and I'm sure you've done consulting, things like this. Those are all things that, A, build our skills, B, bolster our income, C, increase our network. All of these things are going to have compounding effects over time, and that makes taking risks a lot less risky. And it feels a lot safer to do that. It's important uh, for people to not let their new baby feel pressure to run as soon as it comes out of the womb, because it, it, it's going to need to 
do all the things that a baby does when they're born. So uh, I just love the idea of that. The fear we all feel in a very real way when we do something different or out of our comfort zone. Yeah, I will say that for most people, it doesn't take a $150,000 business degree in order to learn how to (laughs) calculate risk and manage risk. And Mm -hmm. I encourage you to not be that person. But for me, I needed to find a way to process this. And I knew that we, as a young physician, we have any, and again, no matter what stage of your career you're in, there's so many opportunities that come across our desk. And being a physician, you have access to more capital than most people. And so there's the question of what should you do with it? You can use it to enhance your life. You can use it to to do something good for other people. You can use it to create a business. I used to think of business as like a dirty word. Hmm. I used to, honestly, before when we went into, when I was in medical school, we would sit down sometimes with the dental students. In dental school, residency is optional afterwards. Mm. You can choose to do residency if you want a little bit more practice in a certain thing. And fellowships are optional after dental school, or you can just go out and practice. And I remember this conversation that these dental students were having with each other. And they used this language. They said, are you going to do residency or are you going to go out and produce? (laughs) And that was was like, that was how they talked about like produce Mm. means like make money, produce some income. Um, and in medical school, we would never talk like that, like never. It was all about um, the science and learning and just trying to be the best doctor you can be. Yeah. And I don't mean anything against dentists. In fact, um, I wish that there was more business education in, medis- in med school, yeah. but there's zero. There was nothing. And maybe there's just, you know, maybe there's just so much important stuff that they feel like there's not enough time to teach it all and they need to cram it in. Or maybe someone needs to take a closer look at medical education and what's really being taught to us yeah. and think about maybe streamlining it a bit or maybe making it a little bit more relevant to us and also fitting in some of these important other things. But you have access to so much capital. And I used to think that business was this dirty word that just produce, right? That the idea of business was that you were taking advantage of the other person. The transaction was one-sided and you had to convince the other person how to hand over their good (laughs) hard-earned money for something that wasn't worth anything or that was worth less, right? Mm -hmm. How can I dupe this person into giving them a little bit less and getting something more from them? Because what I really want is the money. But what I realized is that for a transaction to occur, typically is mutually beneficial for both people, right? They're giving you their money because there's value in what you're giving them. And so business no longer is a four-letter word for me. It's a good thing. If you can create something that people want and that helps other people, then you're creating value for that person. And if they're willing to give you money for it, then it really shows that there's value. They're they're literally putting a dollar figure on the amount that it's worth to them. So I think it's very pure. I think direct care practice keeps us humble. It keeps you thinking about how am I, I mean, it really is value-based care. They're willing to take money out of their wallet for and give to me. And it really makes you think about what am I providing for this person? In some ways, it makes you go above and beyond what you would have done otherwise. And it makes me, certainly makes me slow down and think about what I'm prescribing someone or sit down and talk to them a little bit longer about whether spironolactone is the right choice for them Mm -hmm. or doxycycline is the right choice for them or whether it's just birth control pills and through that through that whole decision making process and we go through that multiple times a day Mm -hmm. we i think of business totally different now differently now and i think of risk totally differently now but there are ways to get that education without having to go through all the fluff and and other filler (laughs) classes and to spend as much money as i did Mm -hmm. i'm very happy that i got my mba but 
if I can be a resource to anyone or, or if these podcast sessions, there's obviously tons to learn through this, but there are so many resources that I'm happy to point people in and I'm yeah. sure Stephen is happy to point people in and through the amazing community, the, the dermatology community that we have, you'll be able to find what you want just by asking questions and not being shy and sending sometimes if you're shy to post something, you know, uh, to the group at large, I think anonymous messages have their place too. Um, if you really need to ask a broad question, you don't necessarily have a contact to ask directly about that you have, and you're just looking for any response you can get. However, I think sometimes people are shy to respond to anonymous questions too, because they're like, who am I talking to? Who's yeah. at the other end of this and, and what's their motive? So Sometimes direct messages are great too. I, I like think that. You'd be I agree. With how help I haven't sent a single message to a dermatologist and not got some sort of helpful reply. Mm -hmm. We're always willing to point people in the right direction. There's not a scarcity mindset in that group or any of the groups that I find myself in. People want to contribute. They feel valuable when they can help someone. I do at least, and I think that's a natural human thing. And we're not always looking for something in return. It feels good to just give or if someone and if someone comes to you, that feels good in and of itself. That is they are providing you some value there because they're making you feel valued. They value what you might be able to tell them. And that is already a form of compensation. And people are so willing to help. And I think once you step into this entrepreneur space or mindset, you hear again and again how important the communities are because it is hard. There are You have to roll with the punches. There are a lot of things that you can't predict and a lot of risks you have to calculate, things you have to, decisions you have to make. And if you can look to someone who's a little bit ahead or maybe a lot a bit ahead, there's so much clarity and comfort that can come from that. And also, you understand how people who are where you think you want to be, if you actually talk to them, you hear how many times things, something has blown up in their face or they screwed up oh, or yeah. they pivoted or something like that. And you understand that it's not just a straight and narrow path and the journey that looks much more like this is the reward in the end. And I think what, what, what makes me restless and what a lot of people get restless with is that straight and narrow path. And they feel like they should be veering off to go look at this, look at the, the gnarly mushroom that's growing on this tree over here. Let's just get off the path and, and take a look <laughs> at that. And for some, sometimes that's pursuing a different degree. Sometimes that's just having a conversation. Sometimes that's taking an online course in marketing or something like that. Uh, you never right. know what that is going to give to you. And yeah, right. there's so much information online. You can get all of this for free. The value that people create with information is synthesizing it and delivering it in a way that is helpful in a more efficient way. But you can get anything you want pretty much for free, uh, but it's going to take a while and a lot of your energy. Uh, so I, I believe there is a lot of value in investing in yourself like you did with the MBA program. If you want to touch a little bit about your um, journey with journalism now, I, th I think that's fascinating that the ability to communicate your yourself, but get ideas from other people as well. And just understanding what the heck even is journalism. I'm sure if I actually knew what journalism was, I'd be much more interested in it than I am. That sort of thing is fascinating to me. And you're clearly a person who is just, you want to see that that gnarly mushroom on that tree. Like that is interesting to you. And it all adds to your, it, it, to your it's like decorating a, a Christmas tree for those of us who do that. Uh, every little bit you put on makes it a more unique uh, tree that is going to 
someone out there, some group of people is going to be like, that's my tree. <laughs> that tree yeah. is the tree that I've been waiting for. Uh, and that's what, that's why it never feel, whether it's no matter what industry it is, you can always differentiate yourself because there are so many people out there needing help. But you have to have clarity on what your product is and you have to tell people about it. That's a big hurdle as well. And that's why so many people ultimately concede to just let the system feed me patients. So I just love your mindset about this type of thing. If you want to talk about what you're going through right now in terms of the journalism pursuit, that'd be great. I think that really started... Uh, it actually started in business school. I took a course on writing and and just communication. It was a short course. It was like a half. I had a professor who was who had been an editor for the New York Times for a while. His name was Glenn Crayman. And it was an inspiring class in that it reminded me of of how the same thing communicated two different ways can either be extremely appealing and interesting or can be totally disinteresting. And, and something that we gloss over. At the same time, probably my best friend, um, who's a dermatologist as well, has been writing and is a writer that I look up to very closely. He writes about non-dermatologic stuff that he experiences in his life and, or that he reads about online, sometimes politics, sometimes cryptocurrency, whatever his interest might be. But I realized that he had this ability to read things and synthesize it and also do some investigative work too, find out more about the thing that he didn't know about. And he used to spend, a, and he still does spend a lot of time honing his craft when it comes to writing that has nothing to do with dermatology, even though he's a practicing dermatologist and most surgeon. The power of storytelling really is what became really interesting to me and how we all go through interesting things. We all have as interesting of a life as anyone else, yeah. or you could say as boring of a life as anyone else, but some of us are more gifted and some of it's a gift and some of it is actually a skill, right? Writing can be like a muscle that you just work on. And when I say writing or I say journalism, this is journalism, right? Mm -hmm. Podcasting is journalism right. too. We're telling a story or we're sharing information and there's an art to it and an art that we may improve upon and that we may hone or we may make mistakes and learn from, but something that we strive to be better at over time and create something that is a value to people or create a product that can be simultaneously authentic and real, but also interesting and maybe a little bit refined or a little bit sophisticated that, that makes you think about something that you've been experiencing or that we've all kind of thought about in, in passing, but not really spent the time to think about. It's a passion project, but if I could get good at journalism, just like all of us as dermatologists, we can use our skills outside of dermatology to, to help our cause, our common cause. You can, one could imagine writing a story about some of the conditions that we see, or even just a patient, because sometimes the story of one is more, more powerful. We see that with current events, right? That the story of one is often more powerful. So if you can come up with that good story or tell something in a unique way that strikes a chord with someone... Sometimes that's enough to make a change. And, and when I say make a change, it could be a, a huge legislative change that has downstream effects. Think about the story of how Accutane became such a difficult medication to prescribe through the iPrescribe program, or the iPledge program. And a lot of that falls, some of it falls on, on unwanted pregnancy, and some of it falls on, unfortunately, a congressperson's son who had some mood instability while he was on mm -hmm. Accutane and ended up taking his own life. And we think about how that's how powerful that story is. Or the story of why dialysis is now covered by the government for anyone who needs dialysis. And it just happened to be a good story and the right person needed it. But 
if you can write in a compelling way, I think that you can change the world, really. And and that's not a hyperbole. Really, if you can be a good storyteller, you could. There are things in this world that you can change much more effectively than, and not to belittle, in the least, the hard work that all of us do, taking care of patients one patient at a time. But if we want to make bigger changes, we may have to think outside the box, and we may have to get creative about how we tell our stories. I love that. That's really well put. And it's clear that you're already embracing the power of that and exercising that muscle, and it's showing. And I'm happy that there are people like you in the field who are interested in acquiring those skills. And yes, some of us might have gifts or talents or however you want to think about it, or just our, all of our brains are different. So some things that come very naturally to me are very difficult for someone else and vice versa. And we need to recognize those things, but also recognize that LeBron James, unbelievably gifted and talented person, but also happens to be one of the most hardworking and disciplined people on the planet. Same with Tom Brady, that I would imagine totally Olympic gymnasts, things like anything like that's at that level, God given or whatever it's coming from, gifts, talents, biology, genetics, all of those things are not enough. Uh, you have to do things to massage that gift, to develop that gift. And you don't even have to start with a gift. You can identify something that you you feel like you have no gift. You lost uh, the, in terms of uh, the lottery uh, for that thing. You think you're crap at singing. There's a great episode or season of Michael Lewis's podcast where he just wants to learn to sing. He thinks he's crap at singing and he takes you through him getting a voice coach and just developing this skill and he's not going to be performing at sydney opera house but he can carry a tune by the end and at he started as someone who says i can't sing and you can become something something very different by saying no i can sing i just need some help and i need to learn and i want to learn and that's what you're doing right now where all of our stories are so powerful if you're not going to use story to make change and to influence people and to get people to to see what you're trying to deliver it's going to be really tough because we are story telling and story receiving and story interpreting machines that's that's simply how we evolved and i think it's really hard to argue against that and we just love a good story we pay for stories we buy books and novels and we go to the movies we might laugh at how it's all just marvel movies and superheroes and stuff who are making the these huge blockbusters but in the, at the heart of it those are great stories just i think star wars is probably the best example i know that's not uh, it, it, uh marvel or dc but that's the hero's journey put into movie form and people are drawn to it and we can all build that skill and it it, it can benefit you in the clinic room as well it does it you can take your case to Capitol Hill and, and make a much more compelling case and tell a story and change the world, like you're saying. But you can also, with those skills, connect with someone who might otherwise be sleeping through your interaction uh, with just the way that you have learned to communicate uh, with another human. And that is incredibly valuable. So I'm sure you'll be taking from these learnings ways that you're going to interact differently with patients in your practice, in addition to things that you can do with your writing and whatever other journalistic, formally journal journalistic pursuits you choose. 
Yeah, again, it's a it's an immense privilege, right? Like there are people who have my my brother, for example, had four hundred thousand dollars of student loans Ooh, after finishing med school. Yeah. He chose yeah he chose to go out of state for he went to a private undergrad and he ended up finishing med school at the same time as me, and is working hard and ha you know is paying it all off and that's great. And I went in state and I had scholarships and didn't have many student loans. I was able to pay it off relatively fast and then. I have the luxury of being able to work and also being able to do some of these side things. And it's not lost on me that it is a privilege to be mm -hmm. able to take time away on, and spend it on further education because education really is, even though it feels like work and even though we worked hard when we were in school, it's a luxury to be able yeah. to study. Last month, uh, I was in Tanzania. Mm. I was doing a, a medical mission trip. And there are people who in this world who are four and five years old and have to start working to support the family yeah. And we'll never have, never even think about or imagine any of the things that we had. And there are people in this country who uh, have to work through undergrad and work through med school. And I didn't have to do any of that. So it's not lost in me that it, how privileged I am to be able to spend time on other side things and other interests that I, just on a whim happen to be interesting to me. But mm -hmm. I do hope that I can turn that into something that helps other people. Because what is it worth if it's not turned into helping something else, someone else? Yeah. That's the value proposition right there. You, it's it's not your fault that these privileges ended up in, in your hands. Just like it's not LeBron James's fault that this immense athletic gift was ended up with him. But what you're right. doing with it and what he has done with it and continues incredibly to do with it, that is your responsibility, and you're doing that. And it's not about feeling guilty about the fact that you ended up with this thing that was beyond your control, and so many other people don't. But it is, it's still important to recognize that and do what you can to improve the lots of people who don't come into nearly as much privilege as some of us and to be aware of that. And I, I appreciate your perspective on that. When I worked for other companies, for example, at least before I was an independent contractor, mm -hmm. because I had a lot of flexibility when I was an independent contractor too, although you still are married to someone else, the, the needs of some other practice, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do many of the things that I can do now. And to have my own practice, specifically a direct care practice where I don't have to worry about an insurance-based practice to meet the requirements of being able to even run the practice, to do the, all the credentialing and to yeah. be able to have a, a billing operation, it, it automatically becomes a big machine mm -hmm. or a big kind of creature. It can't stay small. It has to become big. And then you're bound to seeing a certain number of patients and you're bound to having a certain number of employees. Just to, And that's great because you can be profitable. And so that's more power to people who choose that path if they can juggle those things. But for me, the simplicity of direct care is beautiful and also the flexibility. Like I can choose what days of the week I want to work. I can choose what days of the week I want to do other things. I have the flexibility of adjusting easily to other people's schedule changes at home. And I would say, and, and the question would be, has it impacted my relationship with my patients in some negative way? And I would say no, quite the opposite, right? It's, it's increased and, and improved my relationship with my patients. A typical day is as unpredictable as I want it to be and as predictable as I want it to be in, in direct care because I choose what I want to see and I, I can bring in complicated things if I want to or I can keep it simple and keep my practice streamlined. That's not to say there aren't some challenges. Marketing will always be yeah. a little bit of a challenge. And these are, I'm sure, topics that you'll touch on mm -hmm. in further episodes. But how do you market a direct care practice? How do you overcome the idea of a patient thinking, I have this insurance, shouldn't I use it? 
not considering that it's junk insurance or that it won't really get them anything. There's just this idea that I have this thing in my hand that someone gave to me and they told me this is how I'm supposed to get my medical care. Yeah. And this is, and sometimes the fees that they might end up paying by using their insurance can sometimes be even higher than what they'd pay if they just went direct care, but they don't know. On the other hand, you'll find patients who are just so grateful to be able to see someone the same day or the same week yeah. and to be able to use their HSA card and just pay for their care mm -hmm. and not have to think of it and just be like, wow, that was super easy. Yeah. I got care when I needed it and I didn't have to worry about, you know, some surprise bill yeah. or what else is going to happen. So these are all, you know, interesting things, but really the dream is enabled for me, at least by direct care. It really has, has been everything I wanted. Well, that's fantastic. A, a, a great place to start to wrap up. Physicians as a whole, uh, at least our generation of them, I feel undervalue our themselves tremendously. And that leads into that surprise that someone might have of, oh my gosh, that this person didn't even it, it, I said it, this is what it costs. They said, great, let's let me in. And then they were so happy and grateful that you were there to take care of them and relieve their pain or relieve their anxiety or, or uh, make them just make them be able to just go to work and be with their family without thinking about their skin or their hair or their sweating or whatever it happens to be. And a lot of us don't recognize that. We can't accept that might be true because of so many of the ways we've been, we get indoctrinated in complicated ways through our training. So that's why these stories like this are important. You sharing your story, I'm very grateful for your story. I'm sure our listeners it will be as well. And you're the type of person that I would love to have back on down the road to get in more specific things like marketing. We could do a whole hour just about how do you as a direct pay doc, you need to get people in the door. It, that is your job. And right. that doesn't have to feel salesy or, or it, icky or any of these th things that go along with the thought of, of marketing or branding or things like that. But how can you do it in a way that feels true to you? That works. That actually gets people in the door and lots of things are involved in that. And I would love to do another episode on that or other things that you are keenly interested along the way. And I want to wrap up with something that I'd like to do with all direct care dermatologists that are that I have the privilege of interviewing is just look under the hood a little bit as far as you're comfortable talking about just a few key things that a lot that are a black box for a lot of people who are direct care curious or just thinking about or at the beginning stages of starting their practice just so we can start to accumulate this treasure trove of different ways that people are doing things and expose people to say oh that i never even heard of that that medical record or that emr i'll have to check that out and there's no conflict of interest uh here if you have if you mention something that you have a financial relationship to please do yep. uh, reveal that. But I, from my perspective, it's just, what are, what are you using? What's your stack look like? We don't need to go into it all, but let's start with what medical record system do you use? Are you using something that combines the charting and the booking and the payments and everything? Or are you stringing all those together? Share a little bit about that. I think if I were to do it again, or maybe next financial year, fiscal year, mm -hmm. I might switch. Sure. I use Jane app yes. for EMR, and Very it's popular. great. I have there's nothing more that I that doesn't have that I need. Mm -hmm. There is billing through Jane app, and they have a Jane terminal that you can buy through them where people can pay, so they can take payments directly through it. And I think that would reduce a little bit of redundancy for me. Right now, I just out of out of 
convenience bought a square terminal because mm-hmm. I thought that was like a standard that people are used to. And it works great. Yeah. But there's a little bit of redundancy in terms of creating a bill on the square terminal and then having it reflect also on the on Jane app. Okay. To have the books balanced, I probably would just do it all through Jane and have the Jane terminal. And then we dispense most prescriptions from the pharmacy here in Michigan. We're lucky to be a state where you can you can get a board of pharmacy license. Great. As a physician, you can get what's called a drug control license. It's an add-on to your medical license. Mm-hmm. And when you have a drug control license, then you can prescribe to your own pharmacy in-house. You have a locked cabinet. And again, it was a physician from Florida in the direct peridermatology group that helped me set up all of it. And it doesn't work in every state, mm-hmm. but if you do happen to live in a state where you can do in-office dispensing, it's been fantastic. It's a little bit extra revenue. Yeah. It's a huge extra comfort for patients. That's the ticket. Yeah. Patients, yeah, love, they, it. Yeah, just, they, patients yeah. love it. Yeah, they patients love it. And... Uh, we probably send out maybe one prescription a day of, of a patient who just is comfortable with their pharmacy for or you. for whatever reason. And I, and every patient gets told mm-hmm. you can use our pharmacy if you choose, or you can use another pharmacy. If you like to leave here with the medicine, we have it here. And um, you can tell them I how actually, much it costs <laughs> right up front. Yeah, you, yeah, we have a price list and there's, <laughs> yeah. there's no, yeah. And I think they like that idea. Yeah. Also, you can price it in an affordable way. Sure. I've even expanded my list beyond with that original list that I've seen because there are so many other generics that I prescribe frequently and that happen to not be on the list and that they're just ones that I like. So don't feel limited if there are medicines that you love to prescribe and check out what the wholesale price is and see if you can find a supplier that will sell to you. And then some suppliers will only sell to pharmacies. Some just have this rule, but others will sell to a physician who has a pharmacy registration, which is a different thing. They understand. And and some just have this rule where they only sell to pharmacies. Mm-hmm. But even though you have, you might not have 26 choices of places to buy from, you'll only have 20. So it's still great. You still have yeah. ability to, to compare prices, et cetera. Uh, and, and then for, for scripts that go out, I use iPrescribe, which is like I a mobile app that, okay. yeah, it used to be free. It became $300 a year this mm-hmm. year. We use it enough that it's convenient for us. I very much believe in paying for services. It, it, it doesn't, yeah. you, when it's free, you have to ask some questions about what is the actual price? Are you the product? Are, your, are you the right. price? Are your patients what the company is actually getting? Are, right. Is it about data? Right. All of that stuff. Yeah. We are a people who are asking people to pay for our professional services. So to not have the mindset of it paying other people for their services that make your practice right. more convenient or make the experience for your patients better is silly in my mind. The 100%. fact that you said it's it, it, it costs something now, I would expect it to cost something if it's a good product. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I think that I think the EMR is one of the bigger one that people are going to want to hear about. Jane, for those listening and are curious and never heard about it, you can find more about it at jane.app. And I've explored right. this one as well. It's one that it comes up a lot with folks in the direct care dermatology community. And I know certainly it's they cater to a lot of other clinicians that are traditionally or t- conventionally cash-based chiropractors, acupuncturists, things like that, things that aren't um, typically uh, going to be in- fed by insurance. So right. that's a that's a great resource. Uh, if there's anything that you use in your practice that you've been surprised by at, at how valuable it has been for you and maybe weren't expecting it to be like that or didn't know you really needed it at first. If there happens to be something like that, I I would love for you to share that with us. But I know I'm springing that question on you. We all probably practice differently. Mm -hmm. And that's a great thing, right? There are different ways. There's different ways to do a shave biopsy, right? There's different tools that people use for shave biopsy. Some Mm -hmm. people want a half blade. Some people want a whole blade. Some people only use the brand name Dermablade and don't want the flat persona blades. Again, direct pay medicine, direct care medicine is value-based medicine. And so 
you'll be running a practice, you'll be thinking about where can I save money and still provide the same amount of value? What doesn't matter to me? Where can I get the same outcome? Where can I provide the same service or a better service and not have to spend on something that didn't matter to me? And I've been lucky. Like even my first job at Integrated Dermatology, they practiced value-based care, if you could say that. We definitely were cost-conscious. I'll say that. We were cost-conscious. But that being said, for example, when I trained at Henry Ford, we used brand name Ethicon sutures. Mm -hmm. And they're awesome. The needles are sharp there you can use them over and over and throw 30 stitches with the same needle and it's still going to be sharp when i was in fellowship we used the same ones when i had my first job the mohs surgeon who was there before me had somehow negotiated that he would be able and allowed to use ethicon brand sutures but every now and then some of the sutures from the non mohs surgeons who were also doing some surgery would end up on my tray and i would use them and if the needle bent i was like what is this piece of crap? And throw it to the side and, and not be interested in it at all. I really did believe that Ethicon was the only brand that made good sutures. But I started to realize that if I'm doing a punch biopsy, I don't need a 18-inch black nylon that's Ethicon brand with a needle mm-hmm. at the end if it's twice the price. I just need to throw one stitch, and it's just I don't need to reuse that needle over and over. And so even though you'll have things that you'll, you like and that made sense for you and they work reliably, also think about whether you need that thing for everything or whether it's a little bit of overkill. So I have expanded outside of my comfort zone and I use a variety of stitches now and I actually can do most surgeries without bending the needle. And there are other brands other than Ethicon that work really well. There are some brands that are not good at all that I wouldn't use, but there there are other brands that, that approach the reliability of Ethicon. There have been a few big expenses, for example, our hair transplant FUE device hmm. it was expensive. It was like $17,000, but it was the one that we wanted and it was the one that I knew that, that I would get the best results with and was easy to use. We bought a CO2 laser. I think it was through the community. I found out that you can buy used equipment. We bought a used hmm. CO2 at a great price. It works perfectly and my patients have great outcomes and I didn't need to buy something that was brand new that I was taking the wrapping off of, but it has proven to be something that I use a lot and, and I love to use. The procedure chairs that I wanted were expensive but they were the ones that i was comfortable with and i love them because it gives me that it feels like my practice now is not some cheap watered down version of a dermatology practice Good for you. it feels like the practice that i wanted it to be i have all the things that make a difference for me i can I have a bed where i can approach the head of it and not some kind of dinky thing and that's just again it's just like my impression of the practice yeah you have to be happy too right yeah. you have to you're going to, you're, in fact, that might be the most important thing because if you're unhappy at work and you're sh- spreading that negativity onto other people and onto your patients, you're not going to be very successful, right? And I thought about talking about this earlier where it was like when you're creating value, if you're selling your product, which is dermatology services, and you're creating value and expecting someone to give you money for that product, a lot of that value is in the experience that person has. It might not even, it, think for a second, it might not even be about whether that wart goes away in three treatments instead of four yeah. or whether it goes away in two treatments instead of five, right? If you clear that wart in two tries, but they had a terrible experience and you were disgruntled while you were doing mm-hmm. it, they may still be unhappy. They, In their head, they might be like, why did I even have to go back twice? Whereas if you coach them and you tell them, well, the studies show that the average number of times that we have to treat a wart, even with the strongest things in the office, is four or five times. And you lay that out and you spend the time talking to them and they trust you and you establish that rapport, then they might be very happy to come back five times and 
they'll be a paying customer for that number of times, even yeah. though you know, you're not stretching it out for no reason. You're intentionally trying to cure it every time you see them, but this is just the nature of the, the condition. So you're probably the most important piece of the puzzle, aside from the artwork that you have on the wall or how pretty your sign looks or how nice your website is. You're prioritizing you because it matters to everything else. And and it also matters to you. You deserve to feel comfortable right. just for the sake of you. Uh, but it also has an impact on every other part of your practice and the way you're approaching those patients and coaching them and being honest. You're setting expectations properly. And some of us don't like it, but perception is reality. A bad doctor can make a 20-minute visit feel like two minutes. And the patient walks away and they tell their friend that they the doctor was only in the room for two minutes. And it's because of oh, yeah. the, the way they're treating the person. It's it, it, One of my core values in my practice is hospitality. I just love the idea of what great companies like Disney. And it, it, there's a great book called If Disney Ran Your Hospital. And it's all about applying that stuff to healthcare, that creating little magic moments wherever you can for the person. And there's so much low hanging fruit within healthcare because the expectations have become so low that it's amazing wow factor that we can have people walk away with in a very authentic way. And that's great for them, but fun for you too. I love, if I, my grandma always said I was going to be a chef. I don't, I, I love cooking, I like making food. I, but I would not want to do that as a job. But when I watch passionate restaurateurs and the passion they have for hospitality. Will Gadara, the former general manager at 11 Madison Park in New York, wrote a book called Unreasonable Hospitality, one of my favorites about that. And his he, he first worked for Danny Meyer, the, the Union Square Hospitality Group founder, and Danny Meyer wrote an amazing book called Setting the Table. And both of those books are all you would ever need to know about hospitality. Remember how the person that you just interacted with feels when they leave your office. And oh yeah, I, I love that with kids. I bet you feel that way too. That mom or dad or grandmother or caregiver or whoever, they're going to remember how you treated their oh, child, yeah. not what medicines you talked about or the fact that it took them four visits for the war to go away rather than one, whatever it is. I have had the privilege of visiting so many different practices across the country. When I interviewed for residency, when I interviewed for jobs, when I, even after, even now, I still visit practices, just friends' practices, et cetera. And I used to think that living in the Midwest, the skies are always gray, at least here in Michigan. And it's just like an unhappy place where the sun sets and, and so the winter drags on for six months mm -hmm. of the year. And how can you be happy in a place like this? And it wasn't until recently that I visited a practice in a, a warm and sunny place. And I was there for two days. And... There was something off about mm. the just just the vibe at the practice, and I couldn't put my finger on it. I was like, "This is a place where we all think and we all see movies, and we think that everyone here is happy because we picture the sun and we picture the beaches and we picture oh, I thought everyone here was beautiful and happy and always smiling." And it wasn't until I got back home actually that I realized that it was like, and I was going to work the next day, and I was like, "Wow, I'm really happy to be back here in <laughs> Michigan." Amazing. And, I, and, and it was the strangest thing. And it, look, I'm like, what, five years into my career now, yeah. and I'm 36 years old, and I'm having this epiphany that I'm happier here in Michigan than a whole group of people were. And, and I know people in that same city, practices that are run like Disneyland and where everyone's happy and it's genuine. Like people yeah. are actually just really happy there. Mm -hmm. And it's just practice to practice. And sometimes it's it, sometimes the, everyone takes their cue from the doctor and their mood and their demeanor. Sometimes Because we you have to think about it. You really yeah. do set the stage for others oh, yeah. at the practice. And sometimes the power lies in someone else. Sometimes the power lies in one key 
a nurse or medical assistant who has the it just has to happens to have the relationships and and that person seems to set the the rules but you have the opportunity to set the mood at your practice and you're going to be the one that that really dictates how patients feel when they come in and that alone can make up a lot of the value. We talk about people in saturated areas in Florida. How can someone survive where you're expecting the patient to pay cash, where everyone has Medicare and these people have no copay and can see whatever doctor they want? A lot of that value happens to be because it's a tr- trusted dermatologist yeah. who's just gained a reputation. And the people say, this is the person I want to see because I have that kind of experience with this doctor. So, And you have to earn that. It's not that you do have to, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so, you have that's, to, and you have to create it and you have create, to go a exactly. little bit out of your comfort zone to, totally. to kind of think about how am I being interpreted and how am I making people their best or yeah. am I somehow interfering with people being yeah. their best? Otherwise you're just a commodity. I, I feel like that all the time. I feel like within the, within the insurance game, it, the, the, it's a, it feels like a race to the bottom and it's yeah. about how how many patients can we get you to see while you still stay with us uh, in this journey uh, and <laughs> increase your you know, compensation as little as possible to just keep yeah. you here? And that's how it feels, unfortunately. And there's different strokes for different folks. Uh, but the, for, the, for the people who are having this itch, at least, and I know there will be more and more, or for the folks who are in the thick of it, they've built their practice and they're looking for some guidance, or the people who have already done it, like yourself, you're in it, you're still obviously improving and, and changing, but you've established a practice. The conversations like this, I think, are, are valuable for all of those people. And I want to, with this show, I want to touch all of the different stages of uh, a journey to a successful direct care practice. And by successful, I'm not just talking about financially, the, the things you touched on before, you're, it's the happiest you've been. It's all of those things that are we know in our hearts are actually important. And you can make as much money as you were in the other thing, if that's important to you. Or maybe you don't even need to make as much. You're not making as much and you're still happier, or maybe you're making even more. So I just want to thank you for giving, being so generous with your time. You're happy in Michigan. I'm happy in Wisconsin, but that doesn't mean you can't go to New York City. That's where you mentioned you're going later this week, and yeah. that's going to be great as well. I just wish you the best in everything. I hope you have a safe trip, but I also hope you'd be willing to come back sometime, maybe a few months or so down the road to have a more in-depth, focused conversation about something like marketing. I know that's going to be a topic that people are going to not be comfortable with and want to know what people like you and I have learned and where we've screwed up and what we think works great and what doesn't work great and everything in between. Yeah, I was actually hoping that you could interview someone who actually has the, all the answers for that. Yeah, sure, I'll find them. Don't worry. Listen to the <laughs> yeah. episode. Yes. No, yes, I'll I'd love to be to back. It. But it, yeah, not <laughs> expecting you to have all the answers, but you've, like me, you're thinking about it, and that's really all that matters to me. And we all will have that one thing that, oh, I, I haven't heard of that person, and then I'll go read about them or I'll get that book or something like that. And uh, that's how we're all going to learn. But yeah, I'll have some marketing and branding and marketing experts on for sure. And and it's not just going to be doctors that I'm interviewing here. It's going to be uh, attorneys, branding and marketing, CPAs, every kind of uh, area that is important in a practice that uh, I want to talk to and have us all learn from. If there's anything else that you wanted to add before going, please feel free. Otherwise, I just want to thank you for being so generous and gracious with your time and I, again, I wish you all the best and hope you have a safe trip. 
Thanks, Stephen. It's been a pleasure to be on. I will be following your podcast week after week, and uh, I'm excited for what you're creating. Thank you very much, and I, I appreciate that. I, I want to give you a, a chance to tell the listeners where they can find you. Maybe there's someone in Michigan and say, hey, I, this guy, I, I like this guy. Uh, I, I want to check him out. Where can people find you, either your practice or yourself or anything like that? What's the easiest way for people to contact you or, or find more about you? And I'll also be having in the show notes much more information if there are multiple ways that that you want people to reach out to you yeah of course if people want to get in touch with me they can find me on uh, twitter durham dc or uh, by email f-r-i-y-a-z it's my first initial and my last name f-r-i-y-a-z at gmail.com i'm more than happy to help with anything that that advice someone to talk to whether it's related to dermatology or not whether it's related to life outside personal development challenges in along the way, et cetera. I'm more than happy to be a resource for anyone like you touched on eloquently earlier. Um, we, I'm here and my experiences are here to hopefully help other people and to hopefully save people from some of the mistakes that I've made and improve their lives. And so whatever I can do to help other people, I'm happy to do. Otherwise you can find me through one of these groups. My name is just my name on Facebook and within most of these dermatology specific groups. And my practice is in Lincoln Park, Michigan, and I live in Northville, Michigan. So if you're, if you ever have a long unexpected layover in Detroit, <laughs> we're like 20 minutes, 20 minutes away yeah. from the airport. You're always, I'd love to go out for a coffee That'd... or a bite. If you happen to be in Ann Arbor, if you're thinking, if you're a resident and you're thinking about practicing in Michigan, if you're a medical student and you're thinking about residency in Michigan, anything of the sort, or if you just don't know who to turn to for, for some advice, I'm sure Stephen is a great resource and I'm happy to also be a resource for people. Beautiful. That's the picture of generosity. I'm sure people will be interested in reaching out to you and we're close enough. We should do a live show at some point. Definitely. And you just, you mentioned, you rattled off probably seven or eight things that I think you just signed yourself up for a 10 episode series <laughs> un unknowingly. We'll have you back for sure if you are willing. And I want to leave our listeners with something that you brought up twice that was a an incredible reframe that I had never come across, and I'm going to be thinking a lot about this uh, into the future. You said direct care is value-based care, and we hear a lot about value-based care, and it's one of these things that's like MIPS and macro, and it's just another thing that we're dressing up a really complicated thing with something that isn't what it appears, but that turning that on its head and saying that direct care is value is literally value-based care. This we are not getting paid if we're not delivering value and care. And that is, that's just such a, a perfect reframe and one of my big takeaways from this. So uh, again, I want to thank uh, Farhad Riaz uh, for being with us on the Direct Care Derm. And I am going to twist his arm to come back again and again with us to explore other topics. But until then, wish him the best and feel free to reach out to him in the ways that he mentioned. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Stephen. Hey, Stephen here. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way you can support a podcast is to share, follow, subscribe, and most importantly, leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast hosting platform. If you're new here, you might not feel ready to leave an honest review yet. That's totally fine. At the very least, keep listening and share it with one person in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks for being here. Your attention means the world to me. I'll see you on the next episode.